Hello, my dear listener, and welcome to Is This It? I'm your host, Donna Grinberger, and I'm here to have meaningful conversations with talented and purpose-driven people to discover what mindset allowed them to overcome their greatest challenges and achieve success, and share it with you so you can do the same. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider joining my exclusive Patreon community to support the show and unlock bonus content. Patience is a virtue, mm. and I do a big cross. And I give two examples, right? I give uh, Cleopatra, fantastic woman. By 36 or 38, she conquered a known world, right? Alexander Gate, 32, conquered worlds. I mean, look at the risk and uh, appetite they had to do that, right? Obviously, they're in a position, do it, la, la, la. But that, that done it so quickly. So I always say patience is a virtue looking backwards, right? If you're, if you, you can't be patient when you have an idea and you execute. So it's how you serve people, how you help the world, but how fast you do it. And I don't want to be the greatest or beat anyone. I know a lot of people are super competitive and that should be the case, but it's never been me. It's always been about, it's like history and life is your competition. And it's like coming back to your, uh, how you saw it, it's like a movie. And how good is that movie going to be? On today's episode, author, scientist and entrepreneur, Pradeep Kumar Sachitharan. Pradeep, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you very much for reaching out. <laughs> so good. you have a very rich and intense backstory. So uh, when you reached out on LinkedIn and you told me about it, I, I was like, wow, is this a movie trailer? <laughs> very very uh rich so you said that you um you got to the uk as a war refugee when you were six years old uh you had um kind of a turbulent uh youth days That's a very you nice way of putting it turbulent yes because you said that you got involved in uh, with gangs in london you dropped out of high school at 16 but then we fast forward to later on you uh studied at oxford and harvard um you also said that you're the first in history to win British, European and American Young Scientist Award in one year. That's very intense. And you've managed 1.6 billion revenue to date uh, in your business. You've managed up to 600 people worldwide. I want to hear everything in between uh, and how, how, how is that even possible? So let's go back to the early days when you arrived here. Where did you arrive here from? So my parents are originally from Sri Lanka. Mm -hmm. A funny backstory is that my grandfather's dad, so my great-grandfather, was involved in politics in the north of Sri Lanka. Um, so actually got, I actually went back and they're, they're very proud of him. I, and he built temples and a lot of charity work. And I, I didn't know, you know how my grandfather looked when I first, first, first went back to Sri Lanka. And I'm like, who's this guy at the temple? They're like, this is your granddad. And there's a picture of him with Queen Elizabeth giving him a medal for something. No. So he was building rows and he was one of these guys... And it's a kind of a proud moment in the kind of local area. And so you forth. needed to supply me with some extra material so I can show people. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I'll, I'll, I'll get the picture. I'll dig it up. Um, Amazing. So that's for my great grandfather. Quite good family, um, you know, earned everything himself and so forth. But then the war and like the segregation kicked in and so forth um, in Sri Lanka. So my grandfather and my dad's generation lost a lot. Mm. of the assets and everything we had so my dad was you know he was a troublemaker so he forced out to go and he worked in kuwait 
Uh, he worked, he made a, he went first as a laborer, but then he quickly realized as an entrepreneur, he made one of the first kind of Sri Lankan Indian restaurants and he was doing very well. Mm-hmm. So my mom joined him. Um, so I was actually born in Kuwait City, Kuwait. Oh, wow. Um, so, it, so that's why people say, are you Arab when they see the passport? I'm like, no, uh, okay. I, don't, I don't mean my mind being Arab. Um, so, um, and then... These days it's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, then we went back to Sri Lanka and then the war kicked off, intensified again. And my dad got out first, but because of our history and family name and so forth, it was very hard. So my mom walked into the room one day and I was six. I was actually a very late talker, uh, but I was very observant. Uh, and, um, and she said, your name is Raj. I'm like, what are you talking about? My name is Pradeep, right? Um, in my head, I was like, she's like, we're going. Um, and, you know, uh, so she put me on the back of a truck and we got in and we went to the airport. And obviously we had not the right documents, but my name is Raj. She had gone on a plane. The first time we tried is that they stopped us in Doha, Qatar and sent us back saying, no, this is, this is clearly you're not going to the UK. My mom's like, my husband's there. We're trying to flee and so forth. Then we went back. So the second time we made it, very brave woman, she made it on her own and got me here in the UK. Um, and yeah, the, I, I actually, you want to hear the story, the first day mm. I actually went, I actually saw the auntie that helped us, actually she wrote, signed us off as sponsors. She's still living in Royal Oak in London, I visited her a couple of weeks ago. Um, I remember that day very well because I went there and I, we didn't have nothing. And her eldest son, really nice guy. Um, uh, and he gave his sweater to me. Uh, and that's the only thing I remember when I was like six. Uh, and this is what I say, I was actually telling this story on a different podcast of someone to a, a group of people. Uh, you remember how people treated you. Yeah. Uh, so I never met him ever again, right? But I remember that moment. And my mom came to me probably last year and said, do you remember that guy? He goes, yes. He turned out to be a doctor. He, he done a lot of charity work. He went to Australia and he died of cancer. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, oh, no, very sad. Uh, but I remember what he did to me. Of course. Um, so that was the early days, sorry. Uh, uh, that's the early kind of story where... Uh, How you yeah, arrived here, uh, yeah. Arrived here, and then we settled in a very rough council estate. Um, and Whereabouts? It was called Chalk Hill um, in Wembley. Behold, it was the drug manufacturing capital, I think, of London or even England. Okay. Uh, it was very interesting characters around. Luckily, I didn't get into any legal troubles, but um, I had to be tough. Um, mm. uh, so th- those were your friends when you say you got in Friends kind of... and also kind of the atmosphere, everything around you. You've got to be alert, uh, you know. You've got to be a bit savvy. Um, you've got to know when to defend yourself, know when to back out. Um, and go back um, you, you, you need to know when things are going around how you have to look down and just not pay Let's attention see. and just go home wow. as a kid um, so those are the things you learned on the streets um, yeah and that was the early days and it was I, I don't know looking back it was a great education because you learn different people yeah I always say you know I, we, we couldn't afford much to go out or witness certain things but London gave, gave me a very complex view of diversity, class, and race, and ethnicity. Right, so that was kind of the, the early days. What were the prospects like for you? Yeah. What did you think the future was going to be like? 
Yeah, I actually went to Harrow College and this a kid asked me this. Um, I was on a lecture kind of career day. And honestly, I didn't think about it. You don't know what you don't know. Um, and then you realize that you don't, no one's had a career before. No one's had high school education around you. So you don't know. I, I literally don't know. All I did was hang out with my friends. Luckily, luckily I found weightlifting. Uh, that gave me some kind of discipline and honed my skills, uh, short-term, long-term, medium-term goals. Uh, thank my uncle. I, that's a different story, how I got into weightlifting. Mm. Um, so, yeah, th- coming back to your question, there were no prospects. I just, I, I dropped out of high school and I was working in sales, Tesco. Why did Clark. you drop out? I, I wouldn't say drop out, but I didn't pay it. I, I did drop out in terms of uh, in the American system whereby I didn't get much grades. Yeah. Uh, I didn't pay attention. I didn't know what value was. I liked two lessons. I liked science. I liked history. Mm. I would actually run to history lessons. Mr. Cobb, if you're watching, I loved your lessons. <laughs> um, I would run to those lessons. Uh, and science I liked very much, but Ned, I still remember it was um, Mr. Simmons, you're watching, I didn't like you very much. <laughs> he said, oh, you're talented, but you can't get to the top class because uh, your other subjects are not the best. Mm. And it's a pet peeve of me, not because of what Mr. Simmons does, but um, we always say talent, sometimes we look for uh, in our young people and across the world, a breadth of people who can do so much and so many different things. But also the world needs people who do very Specialists. special things at a very special time. And to be honest with you, you know, 20, 30, 40 years old, you're actually known for one thing. Uh, you're not known for a breadth of things. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. That, so, anyway, coming back. So, those are two things that I, I loved at school. But otherwise, you know, I, I didn't pay attention to school. I didn't understand where it would lead me. Mm. So... And then you said that weightlifting kind of uh, changed things for you. How, how, and you also mentioned that you had a serious fight that left you in a coma. Mm-hmm. So weightlifting, um, so Kumar uncle, uh, one of my favorite uncles, my mom's second eldest sister's husband. He was, he was an entrepreneur as well. And he came to London to sell Sri Lankan in, in candy in the mountainside. He's very famous for tea and also roses mm-hmm. and flowers. So he was trying to sell those two things. So he came over and, and he watched me going. He said to my uncle, this boy is either going to go to jail or going to die very soon, right? Um, wow. <laughs> so he, and, and he was actually an ex-police officer. Um, so he kind of knew that um, kind of mindset, if that's the word. And he said to me, uh, he's, uh, and I got in trouble at school uh, a lot. So he came to the head, head teacher and she said, you know, I had a meeting, I room that meeting because I'll, I'll try to discipline him and so forth. So I tried martial arts. I tried ninjutsu, judo, karate, taekwondo, boxing. I, I, I tried all that over a span of three years. Mm-hmm. Nothing stuck to me. But then Kumar uncle went to Argos. Do you know Argos? Mm-hmm. Um, he, and he got me... These um, st- th- in old days you didn't have iron. You had these um, plates that had cement or stone in them, and he got those weights for me. And I just fell in love with them. So I used to weightlift, watch uh, weightlifting, Olympic weightlifting, uh, bodybuilding, powerlifting uh, at that time, mm-hmm. um, and just got into it. Okay. Um, serious discipline. I actually looked back a couple of months ago. I still have notes when I was young. 
um, I used to write diaries. I, had, I have 18 years of diaries of my workouts. Mm. And I used to have short-term, medium-term, long-term goals. So without me knowing, I was doing these things in a, in a slightly different discipline. And one thing I like about weights, uh, I always say it's probably my best friend. Uh, because when you walk in, if it's a bad day, a, a shit day or a good day, you know, 200 kilos is always 200 kilos. It's mm. not going to talk back to you. It's going to be the same thing and it's going to treat you like it is. And, and it's just me and me. Mm. There's no one else involved. Um, if something goes wrong, it's my fault. Mm. Um, I, I don't know. I just loved it. I think there's some data and correct me, guys, if you're wrong, if, if this podcast goes out, that weightlifting is actually shown... Uh, to be one of the greatest beneficial uh, inputs for confidence building. Mm. The gradual, the lift, the yes. way to lift. Um, so I haven't seen that piece of data myself, but I've heard it somewhere. So yeah, I fell in love with it. I always kept going. Um, funny story, coming back to the coma at the latter part of your question. Uh, I'll, I'll just tell you one more story. And so it was um, leg day for me, right? Do you go to the gym? I do, I do. All right. Do you have days where it's leg or upper body? Every day is a Every day lower is... body day for me. <laughs> <laughs> right. As a typical woman. Yeah, okay. so it was leg day and one of my friends said, hey, we're going out um, with some opposite gang. Or... And when you're kids, are serious, right? Got in, uh, we're going to fight and so forth. I'm like, dude, it's leg day. You know, I just had my pre-workout. Just leave me alone. I'm just going to go. Uh, lift weights and they knew that I'm very serious so I left it that day these are kids um, uh, Dana um, these are kids that make choices and they're not bad evil people so that day they're going to a serious fight um, and the guy ended up dying uh, one of them wow. um, and the rest were in prison so wow. I chose not to go because it was leg day um, Guys, this is all I'm hearing is Jim is saving lives. Yeah, so. it is saving because it was my leg day and I didn't go. And I specifically remember that. Um, uh, and, you know, sometimes I look back and I get goosebumps, right? So so those were the kind of things you get involved in. Yeah. So 21 came about, I was, I was actually working part-time everywhere in London, bars, clubs, Tesco, clocks, shoe shop, hotel, because you got to make money. Obviously. you got to make money. And um, I was always, uh, you know, learning sales now. Yeah. So, so life was teaching me different lessons. I didn't even know about it. Mm -hmm. I think it's Steve Jobs who said that you can only connect the dots looking backwards. Um, that is true. And so, yeah. And then uh, I remember 21, it was a stupid fight. I'll say Bar Rum, but I don't know if it exists in Pickley Circus around that area. Um, yeah, someone just hit me over the head. I think it was a bottle. Um and then, yeah, I was bleeding out, then went into a kind of mini coma only for four hours mm. overnight. And I woke up. Uh, it wasn't a, a kind of a shocking, traumatic moment. Uh, I didn't see God, angels or anything uh, prophetic. Um, it just, I just woke up. I'm like, what am I doing with my life? Um, mm. uh, this is stupid now. Um, you know, and uh, what really hit me is all my friends were, uh, were not there. My family wasn't there. My mom said, oh, you got into this mess. You come home, right? Um, so I remember I was, I was injured. I was in pain. And I still had blood-stained um, um, clothes. And it got so bad, I didn't even realize that doctors didn't even realize that the blood was just pouring down. It ended up in my, it drying up in my, oh uh, my God. Um, heel region. 
That's uh, after you've been treated? I hope yeah, it was before. No, it wasn't cleaned or anything. Oh. So I remember on the Metropolitan Line going back from uh, Houston Road, I was like, what the fuck is this? Um, sorry, can I swear? Yeah. Okay. No, you can, no it's an expl- <laughs> mark, marked explicit. <laughs> Tell uh, me. So, yeah. So I went back. I was like, okay. Um, and then that's... That's happened at 21, then, then I started my academic journey. Yes, so this is the big question. So from that moment on, what changed and how, how did you get into the academic world? Because you mentioned Harvard, Oxford. These are not by any means easy schools to get into uh, with means or especially without. So what was your journey? Yeah, so I didn't think of Oxford, Harvard straight away. Um, I thought about uh, education. Um, so I thought, you know, how do I change my prospects? Uh, and, you know, it's a question I talk to a lot of young people about now. Uh, I'm try- not trying to age myself now. Uh, I'm not that old, by the way, guys. How old are you? Uh, I'm 37. Um, so the fundamental currency, I believe, is it's a degree. I'm going to digress and explain my point and answer your question. I hear a lot of people saying, hey, he's been a six, Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg, um, Bill Gates all dropped out, very successful. A lot of dropouts become. Well, th- the thing is, I looked at this, Steve Jobs dropped out of Stanford. Zuckerberg and Gates dropped out of Harvard. Now, a lot of these guys who dropped out actually have the aptitude and the IQ and the ability to get into a highly selective school, Right or they have coming from a good foundational educational background that they can afford to drop out. Mm-hmm. If not, you know, you, people make their um, own journeys. So I believe a, a fundamental currency, a good currency is a degree worldwide now mm-hmm. because uh, education itself is on the up everywhere around the world and you're in a global market. Um, so I think that's a fundamental currency that everyone can get. And if you can, you should get because generally you are 21 when you finish. Unless you have a brilliant sparking idea and you're just going like this, it's fine. For me, for my situation with the cards I had uh, dealt in my life, I just felt at that time a degree would serve me well. Particularly because at the sales jobs I was working at, I could never get to the managerial position, even though if I was running shops and so forth, because everyone had a degree. It was like the requisite to get into a management yeah. program. So I thought, okay, let's do this. Um, so I said, how do I eff- effectively get to my goal of a degree with what I have? And I had no education background and one C in English speaking. Um, so again, second lesson of life after sales is a numbers game. Pick up the phone, made three phone calls. A really nice woman called Janet Hudson, not the singer, um, uh, Janet, I love you if you're listening. And uh, she said, come over to Westminster University. Have a chat with me. I had a chat. She goes, oh, I think you be, you're 21 now, so you can, you're a mature adult. You can do something called an Access Foundation course, which is an entry level to a degree. So it's basically four of the sciences combined in one year that mm-hmm. allows you to do a degree. So I did that for one year, uh, passed, and then... In the first year, I was doing sports science because that was my background, sports science. I thought, that's what, that's what I'll do. Fell in love with biology. I really had an aptitude for biology. Um, I still remember, you know, coming back to Oxford and Harvard, I never thought so high. 
I, I just want a degree. And remember, I remember, I still remember her name, Lorna Tinworth. Lorna, uh, uh, Laura Tinworth. Laura, I love you too. Uh, and uh, she was the marker for my first sales um, uh, membrane essay. And I got first class. Uh, and I'm like, oh, I've got a first. Uh, I can do this, right? Hi, everyone. Today's episode is sponsored by Momo Kombucha, my favorite non-alcoholic drink together with water. I've now been drinking Momo Kombucha for around six months, and I really love their product because they're healthy, they're delicious, they keep coming out with these new flavors and limited editions, watermelon that I tried recently that I was obsessed with. So if you wanna try Momo Kombucha and you haven't yet, feel free to use the discount code ISTHESIT15 to get a 15% discount off your first order. Like I can write, I can do, I, I can write very well, do the data and so forth. I'm like, let me really hone in. And when I go focus, it's obsessive focus. Um, I actually get criticized for it because I'm all in, mm. like all in, right? Well, that leads to results. So <laughs> yeah. that's good in that yeah. case, yeah. So, and then I was like, okay, I can do this. I can do this. Then I started doing it, getting the grades. And then I started dreaming bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, so even when I was weightlifting, I wanted, you know, I would say I wanted six gold medals in the Olympics. They're like, why do you want six? I said, Steve Redgrave, who is a very famous British rower, has five. Mm. I'm like, why can't I be the best? No genetic potential to go to <laughs> Olympic at all, right? But for an Asian guy, um, you know, per body weight ratio for my height, I lift ridiculously well. And I have a lot of discipline in the gym and I can shut gyms out because of my, people can see how focused I am and how much weight I'm lifting. But that next level of Olympics, no. But I say that you should always, you know, maximize your genetic potential. Mm. So when I was doing that, I started dreaming a bit uh, bigger and bigger. I'm like, how can I do the next step? So I started researching. Now, it go, it, funny story, when I was doing ninjutsu, I, my uncle came in and said, what are you, she go, he goes, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm trying to be a Japanese citizen. I'm, and he's like, why? He goes, I said, you've you got to be Japanese and a Japanese citizen to be a grandmaster. Mm. He's like, dude, like you've only been doing this for three, <laughs> three weeks, right? <laughs> <laughs> so that's how my mindset is. So once I see results, I'm like, how can I go here and I do it quickly? What's uh, the ultimate height that I can yeah, achieve in this? Quickly as possible. Uh, without, you know, ethically as well, not cutting corners and so forth. So I thought, okay, I want to do, I want to be a drug discoverer. I, I, I think I, it's my love, it's my passion. Uh, and to be the best, I think I need to be around the best and be around the best equipment. Um, so from Westminster, I just plugged in, worked hard, got the grades. Every summer I got a scholarship uh, to do a lab intern work. Um, and then I'm like, okay, this is good results. How can I keep go one step further? So I remember I got a award to go to the Physiological Society. Thank you very much for that award. I'm just naming everyone. Yeah, <laughs> Physiological Society. Yeah, these are the things that these societies and bodies that really help young people. Uh, if you make if you impact one person's life, it makes a chain reaction. So they gave me an award to go to a conference, and that conference was at Oxford. So I went to Oxford. I was like, oh, yeah, okay, this is okay. I mean, colleges are pretty, people are good, they talk very well. I'm like, I can survive here. It's not a problem. Um, so the next summer, I went to Oxford again, and this time I went alone, uh, dressed very nicely, um, and I just 
put myself in that environment. I just walked into college and started shaking hands with professors. They're like, who is this kid? <laughs> what is this? I'm like, how do I get here? So for many doors shut, I just started talking to people and so forth. Um, then I learned... Like, what worked? So what worked between that? So you spoke to a lot of professors. They must have been like, okay, well, some, some might have been impressed. Some might have been not impressed. No, no one actually... What worked? Nothing worked. Okay. <laughs> I went away and, and I thought, okay, nothing works because... Uh, it's a perception, right? I always say failure, um, I forgot my own saying now, um, but uh, rejection is a um, misconceived perception. Someone's rejected you not because you might be wrong, but they perceived you wrong. Mm. Or you have to change your perception to the world. Um, so I thought, okay, what's the perception? They think I'm at a Polytech University, I'm, I, haven't, I haven't got the caliber, right? So I went away... Got my grades, then I said I did 40, no, first time around I'd done probably 22 or 23 applications to PhD programs, rejections. So then I thought, how do I get to another level? So I applied for a scholarship um, to Imperial College, um, London, for a master's program. I got that scholarship. So, so I'm stepping up now, right? So I went to Imperial for one year. So I had my first class, then I went to Imperial, then I applied again. So imp getting to Imperial again was a numbers game, 13 applications for Masters, and the 13th one I got my scholarship, so it's a numbers game. Mm. And then Oxford, another 20 applications, in total 47th application, then I got my um, interview at Oxford. So I went to Oxford, um, I remember Afsi, hi Afsi, uh, she's a character, and hopefully she watches this podcast one day. And she's turned around, Afsi was the director, and she turned around and she goes, this is one of the best interviews I've had at Oxford for over 20, 30 years. And I'm not showing off, that's what she said. And I asked her why, she goes, your breadth of knowledge across all labs in the UK is amazing. How do you know at a young age what everyone's doing? And I'm like, in my head, I was like, I, I was like, I read up. But in my head, I was like, that's because I got bloody rejected so many times. Mm. Because PhD applications are very specific, so you need to know what each university, college, and everyone does. Mm. So rejection and failure from that kind of early 20s, I've learned that what is working and what have I learned and what knowledge have I learned and how can I utilize this? So I'm always thinking of those three things mm -hmm. where I take it with me. So that's how I go into the academic and that's how I go into Oxford. Then getting into Oxford, it just it was a different, it turned my life around. How? Um, so I remember the first day at Oxford, I walked in and I was like, okay, these guys are from different backgrounds, no problem at all. You know, I, I, one thing I always say to kids, like, you can't compare and contrast. It is what it is. What you can't, you know, change your genetics. You can run away from home. You can run away from your family, your loved ones. You can run away from your city, but you can't run away from your genes and where you're born and the early life. So, so when I walked in, I saw all these kids from different backgrounds, mo mostly with a strong foundation in academia or strong foundation of heritage or legacy. And I got on a table uh, and Dana, I was sitting and I was talking. The guy next to me turned out to be my best friend, Philippos. I hope you're well. Uh, he's the son of a general in Cyprus. Really nice guy. Uh, probably smartest guy that was at Oxford at that time. Um, and Jeff and others and this kids of politicians, laws and stuff. Everyone's so nice. But then I realized, I thought these conversations will be high caliber in terms of ideas, how to change the world. It was like everyone's having normal problems, like relationships, 
you know, uh, comparing and contrasting where everyone else has gone to, mm. what what they might have in a day, what they're going to eat, you know, what everyone's saying about each other. I'm like, like I've got this. Like, no, no one is talking big here. Like, no one is thinking big. No one is obsessively focused. So I met four, pe- three people that were like me. We had a group, um, and then, yeah, I just network hard at Oxford. I, I studied and worked in the lab hard. Um, I for probably the first eighteen months, people wrote me off, right? Um, and I remember those faces. Do you ever watch Anatoly, the 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 gym prankster that walks in as a yes. cleaner? Yes. That's yes. my that's a microcosm of my life. <laughs> <laughs> like, really? That's a micro because when you walk into all these new endeavors and fields, um, the people are like, who the fuck is this guy? Like. And then the weights go up, like that's like microcosm. But you've got to be humble and understand it that most people, the world has shown them a certain perception and then you just got to break it down. Mm. So I worked very hard in the labs in Oxford and networked hard. Networking is very important as well. Um, and then, yeah, I discovered a drug, published a paper, won those awards mm. in the same year and that set me up. That was how long into when you started working? Uh, that was uh, probably towards the end because it takes a considerable yeah. time. Probably three years into it. Yeah. Uh, the PhD was four. Yeah. Um, then here's what is, the, and this is what changed again. I say to myself, probably my second dropout of life. And I dropped out of high school, uh, dropped out of kind of traditional academia career, whereby... I realized that even if you win a Nobel Prize, and some of the professors were Nobel Prize winners, or even if you're extremely bright or gifted or whatnot, everyone is living in a box where they're fed their own data. Hmm. Like you yeah. are who you are because of the data that's coming into you for your five senses, and you accumulated that, and you're working off a working pattern. So I told my professors, hey, um, profs, I have, a, I have three ideas for potential drugs for osteoarthritis. Um, and they're like, yes. I said, I think this will cost three hundred million. <laughs> I was twenty-seven. I, uh, I was, I was kind of ambitious. And I said, how do you go about this? They're like, well, it'll take thirty years, pretty. You do a bit of data research. You go back. You write something, a grant. You get some money. You do some research. You go back, write another grant. And that's how the system is. I'm not saying it's wrong. That's what it is. And it's good because you need peer-reviewed articles and so forth. Then I said, there's something deeply flawed in this um, because A, I'm impatient. B, I just want to do everything and discover drugs. So I applied for these fellowships and these big grants, nothing. So I said, okay, so now after you finish a PhD, you have to do eight years of thing or two um, kind of uh, post, called a postdoc, mm. postdoctoral fellowship. So it's a bit like if you're a career, you start with an analyst and you go off an associate analyst and so forth. I'm like, how can I become VP, right? That's the kind of thinking. How do I become a lab head or a professor? Straight away. Yeah, straight away or discover the drugs. Hmm. The titles don't, I don't give a monkeys, right? It's just how do I get to the point where I can direct my own research, right? So they're, they're like, oh, you can't. And I kept getting rejected. So I'm like, okay, it's a numbers game, right? What have you learned? It's a numbers game. And now life was teaching me it's a risk game, the third mm-hmm. element I always talk about. So what's the risk? So I said, after Oxford, where can I go? I can go to Harvard, right? So when I was in my fourth year, 
by the way, when you're a scholarship, um, you don't get much money. So I saved up my scholarship money. I'm like, yeah, I've, I've been broke before. <laughs> this doesn't scare me. So I went to Boston. Um, I stayed in a hostel. And there was a conference. And I went to an aging conference in aging-related disease in Australia. You know, but one thing I was known for in Oxford was just standing up in crowds and asking the toughest questions to anyone. Because I, I found data very well and I can see gaps very quickly. Mm. Um, so I asked those questions, kind of professors kind of like, wow, who's this guy? So I went and talked to them, shook their hands and said, hey, can I come to your lab? They're like, sure, come over. And then I thought, okay, they all want me to stay for four years. I'm like, this is just too long, right? So I went back, uh, to the, came back to the UK and I wrote for something called the Fulbright Scholarship. Um, so I got the Fulbright. Um, so I, be, I became a Fulbright scholar. And I was like, hurrah, hurrah. I'm like, okay, whatever. And then I went to Boston for nine months. So I learned a particular technique. I learned something, one, one very good thing. Came back to the UK, got rejected. What was that thing? So I looked at a gut microbe uh, um and gut health and how to do gut research. The gut is very important uh, for immunology. And I wanted to relate that to joint diseases. So I learned how to do experiments uh, in the gut kind of uh, region, not physically, but in the field of gut research. Um, I actually wrote a book um, uh, on gut health, and we'll get back to that. Um, so I learned that, I came back, I'm like, hey, I've got this new data and ideas, can I get for it? They're like, no, I'm like, this is not going to work. So then I thought, okay, I've been broke before, <laughs> let's do this again. So I wrote for an EMBO fellowship, which is a European fellowship. Um, and all you scientists or any um, kids out there, the best thing to do is to write for scholarships or visiting programs in any field, or even if you're a business entrepreneur, there's so many fields out there that allow you to visit the world. And they pay you money or subsidize your travel. Just do it because you learn so much. So with the, no, before the EMBO fellowship, I got a da Daniel Turnberg fellowship went to Israel, changed my life. Six weeks, love Israel, my favorite country in the world. Um, they, nothing comes close to it. I'm really sad what's going on. Um, had a great time with the Jews, had a great time with the Palestinians. I went into the West Bank. I, I um, hitchhiked all over Israel, no problems. I learned something in protein science, came back. No, got rejected again, no fellowships, no positions. Then I wrote for something called the EMBO Fellowship, went to Paris, lived in Paris for three months, got a network in Paris, learned under the best professor, again in joint diseases, came back, no jobs, uh, no fellowship position. So now I went around the world, got the best experience, got a formidable CV. Mm -hmm. I'm like, this is, this is rubbish, right? Because I might be rubbish, by the way, <laughs> right? Uh, there's no ego here. I might be rubbish. Yeah. So the professors might be saying, I'm not good enough, which is fine. So I'm like, where can I go in the world, like my parents, where I I'll can... I'll be appreciated. Ap appreciated, but I can do my work quick. Um, so after, I think, 242 or 72 uh, applications, um, I learned... How much time does it take to make an application like that? So the first kind of 10 are the hardest, and then you're rejigging. Mm. Same documents, rejigging, yeah, yeah, yeah. rejigging, and you get better and better and you hone your skills. And you meet some very, very good people out there. Some people just laugh in your face, but uh, there's a professor in D uh, Detroit University. Mm -hmm. I still remember him. Thank you, sir. I forgot your name. Apologies. 
uh, he, and he gave me very good feedback. He goes, you're probably 15 years too young, but here's the feedback, but because this application is brilliant. Southern California University professor as well gave me very good feedback. You're too young, but this application needs this and this. So one or two people out there will help you. And mm -hmm. you've got to get that knowledge. Don't pester them too much. Get that knowledge and make your CV better. And then, yeah, the opportunity came in China. That is a, that is a crazy story. Can I tell you that story? Yeah. Uh, so the application landed. So I applied all over China, right? It, it's, there's a north, never, northeastern Quindou, Quindou um, city, um, Quindou University. Um, and it landed in one of the dean's offices. And the CV and my application was sitting there, right? And the dean didn't look at it. The associate dean walked in. And he's like, uh, talking la la la. And he's like, what's this application? Who's this long name? And he says UK. So he was intrigued. Associate Dean was actually went to America and the UK to study. Normally the Chinese go away and come back. Mm -hmm. And the Dean said, oh, he's just crazy guy. I think he's a Forster. He's got Oxford and Harvard and all these things. And he's applying to us. I have no idea. And he looked at it. He goes, no, no, I recognize these labs and all these fellowships. And he gave me a... He gave me a ring. Yeah. Um, uh, no, he gave me an email. Then I, I, I gave him a ring back. Uh, he goes, is this a scam? And I'm like, no, no, no. Like, this is who I am. This is my um, credentials. He's like, what do you want? I said, I need money and a position because this is my data. And I just sent it to him. Um, sometimes you just have to trust people and send those things off. And he goes, look, we can't um, do it here. But I have a friend who can do it in Nanjing. So I went to Nanjing and my friend's like, we, we all, I, I went to China, first time ever, presented. The room was full of all these old uh, PhDs, uh, doctors, and I don't know who it was, right? Uh, it was a great time. They entertained, they entertained me and looked after me very well. He's like, we can't do it for you, but we have another friend in Suzhou. So my CV landed on a random table. Someone checked it. Someone looked at his friend and he, I went away and then someone else's friend offered me the job. So that's how I got my uh, associate professorship. So I was 29. So two years after my PhD, I became an associate professor. Which is completely uncommon. Against all, against all, okay. all, all grains. Um, I had my lab, I had my students, had my medical students and I got to work. And that 30 years that it, the professors at Oxford and Harvard, by the way, they're not wrong. It does take 30 years. Uh, we did it in China with the right money and we published three papers with three new drugs for osteoarthritis in 18 months. Wow. Um, so the data is out there and people are researching on it. And it will, So I've done my job by 30. Um, so that's how I academic journey and how that changed. And then my third dropout is when I dropped out of academia and professorship, I still mm. retained my professorship and I went to the corporate side. So why did you do that? And how long after you got this position, actually, you decided to transition? Yeah, so someone approached me from Nanjing, a biotech. They're like, hey, uh, we've seen your presentations in China. You know, you have this ability to win people over. Uh, I didn't know Chinese. By the way, one of my weaknesses is that I'm very bad at languages. I just can't pick them up. Um, I can I can really speak English now. <laughs> um, so I'm just about mastering English. Um, so uh, did you have an interpreter? Yeah. yeah. So one okay. a guy yeah. that fought, only in the corporate world because yeah. in Suzhou it was an English university. Okay. Um, 
so this guy, um, the interpreter walked around. So the CEO went and said, hey, do you want to become vice president of business development? No, I suggested it. I said, I'll help you in Europe and the Middle East. I think they're the best markets to grow in. I think we can't compete in America. So we were selling biotechnological um, equipment, um, um, uh, resources, contracts, and so forth. And, um, and yeah, and the company was big. I was, had 80% growth. What's it called? Uh, Gem Pharma Tech. And we had another sister company as well, um, a parent company. I don't know if I should say the parents' company name, but yeah. So I went. I worked in various um, um, companies. Um, so the companies became very big. Um, so the, then the pandemic hit, um, and the pandemic was eye eye opener. Um, it was like um, I always related to. Do you know um, Will Smith's movie I'm Legend? Yeah. Uh, and the virus breaks out and New York's it's just him and his dog. I, well, I didn't have a dog at the time, but it was literally, it was, it's really eerie. And I'll show you photos afterwards. Um, and maybe we can put them up if you want. It was like China and the massive roads and it was misty and foggy. And I was the only guy walking down the middle because it was okay. Then boom, all of a sudden lockdown. How were you allowed to walk around? So all the, we were in an expat a building where we had no kitchens in our apartments. We had to eat in the restaurants downstairs and so forth. Um, and all of those facilities were closed. So all foreigners were told to go to this hotel, a bunch of hotels there. And when I turned up to the hotel, I was the only foreigner there. Wow. <laughs> so two things happened during the pandemic. Uh, one thing I learned about high corporate level um, kind of mergers acquisitions. So uh, you want me to go into it? So... I want to know how you as a person transitioned and upskilled from an academic to an entrepreneur because that's not, you know, the same at all. It's no. very, very different skills. No. So, um, so, so from academia, I probably went more corporate business than entrepreneurship. Mm. So the switch from academia to corporate was hey, I achieved everything in academia for researching the fundamental drugs in the lab. How can I now learn and um, accelerate for my species how, how drug discovery is actually occurring? So you and I can actually have a concept, or you're a designer, right? In, well, in, no. <laughs> in the fashion kind of area. In, I was in sales, I was in sales. Sales, but you know how designers can design certain things, but manufacturing it and getting it done is a totally different Totally ballgame. different. Uh, I think it was Elon Musk was in Joe Rogan's podcast, and one day maybe this podcast will be, be uh, as big. And Elon Musk was saying, you know, uh, we should make movies about the manufacturing side because it's totally very hard. And it's the same for drug discovery. You can do the basic research, but actually doing the manufacturing, finding the compounds, making the drug, making, taking it to market is extremely hard. So I wanted to learn that side. So the switch was then becomes a philosophical one. Whenever I drop out of certain things or pick up new things, A, I think I have a new passion or obsession, I like to say, in those things. And I always say that um, when, when I talk to a lot of people in, uh, in podcasts everywhere, students, mentees, and so forth, you can see there's two different things. There's the ego and there's the identity. Um, and I think you've got to separate those things out. 
your ego will say, okay, you're, I don't know, and ego is good, by the way. I never say ego is bad. Ego is self. Mm. I always say it's like your skin and identity is like the clothes you wear. The ego is always going to be there. So the ego is like you're bright, you're um, um, athletic, you can do all these things, you know, and you've got to use that ego at the right time. But identity is what I think um, affects a lot of people, you know. Uh, uh, you are Asian or you are British Asian you are Oxford you are Harvard you are a professor you are you know you are these things and you attach your whole IQ EQ your existence to the identity Mm. if you can detach all that and say to the hell with all that I am now a corporate business development manager Uh, forget all the ego and identity you do very well um, and how do you dampen that down? I think is the secret. I can't teach it. I'm, I by no means am I a psychologist, but I think that's what I've been very good at in life: is take away the ego. Mm. Um, you know, I can lose it all, and I can still walk around London and get it back. I believe because I can detach from the ego. Um, very interesting. I'm, uh, I very much resonate with what you just said, and it makes sense. If all of a sudden you just you decide that you want to do something, so for example, to go into the corporate world and you become aware of this skin of this of these layers of identity that you are wearing and you become aware of them then you can almost just like take it off yeah and you can put it in a closet and then you can just dress into this new identity that you want to assume and then you can just ask without the burden of that previous skin or that hide you can just ask yourself well what does this new outfit will require of me now and by asking these open questions, you can then find out and you can just do it. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I, I, I think if you sit down and think about it, I think a lot of people can do it, but it's very hard to do so uh, because the identity catches them out. Most of the time, uh, I don't think it's the person him, himself, herself, their self, whatever pronoun, uh, is, is the hindrance or restriction. It is what people will think of them if they change identity, mm. right? And what is the objection of others? I think that's what hinders a lot of people. I, I frankly don't care. Um, I, I do think that you should look What at, motivates you? Uh, greatness. I, I want to be great. Um, I want to maximize... Uh, I always say... Do you, you ever see, like... the? Have you ever seen the helix of the DNA? Mm-hmm. Strand, like yeah. it twists? Yeah. For me, that's like a towel and all the ATG and all, all that thing in the DNA is like sweat. Mm. I want to squeeze that and I want, <laughs> I want to maximize the genetic potential and I want to play my, the cards life has given me very well. Mm. So I, I don't... So what, to what end? Why does that matter? Because it it's, comes down to self-development. It comes down to growth. Um, if... Yeah, I'm not growing then. If I'm not growing, if I'm not proud of myself... You know, I can't love anyone, I can't do anything, so forth. Yeah. Um, so That resonates. Yeah, so I can't do much. So those are the things, that's what drives me. And I don't want to be the greatest or beat anyone. I know a lot of people are super competitive and that should be the case. But it's never been me. It's always been about, it's like history and life is your competition. And it's like coming back to your, uh, how you saw it, it's like a movie. And how good is that movie going to be? Mm. Yeah. Uh, that 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 makes a lot of sense. I think I think. Do you know David Goggins? Yes, of course. Yeah, something he said will resonates as well. I mean, kind of uh, that energy where he said, 
if God or he believes in God looks back, he wants to say, I never saw you doing that. Yeah. Um, so I put yeah. you there to do that. Why didn't you do that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's all like, what do you uh, think is your purpose? Um, probably two things. Being useful for my species and to inspire my species. If I can inspire people, I think the inspiration is more now. I mean, I've discovered drugs that may work, may not work. We'll find out in years to come. Done that. My number one goal is to obviously grow a very, very big company and use that to actually use the money very well to for purposes where I think it can impact the world uh, in terms of charity, political influence, leadership institutions and so forth. That's the next 20 years. Mm. And if a kid can look back at this podcast or anything and say, hey, this bald-headed beard guy done all this, why can I not do it? Because, you know, I, I've seen people much more talented than I in this world. Uh, it's just that even if they have opportunity, they don't switch on. Mm. So if I can inspire, I think that's the purpose. What do you think is that thing that makes someone switch on and take the opportunity? I think the... The data shows that you need a very traumatic event, right? Um, because it's very hard to change certain circumstances and routine. I think a traumatic event, or I, I also believe that we're all equipped, uh, I might get very spiritual here, we're equipped with something called free will and thinking. Free will can be determined by the system you live in, but you can sit no matter where you are and you can imagine and think, right? I think you can use those utilities to think of possibilities and solutions or goals of your life and you can just go at it. Mm. Um, you know, there are, more, there are days when I'm anxious. You know, I'm not the superman. Like I, sometimes I can't sleep because the business is going down, something going wrong. You know, I wake up uh, anxious. So I, I go to you know, my notebook and I think these are my goals. This is what I'm going to do, and I get to work. So I think thinking uh, and really switching on is the only way to really change. And third thing is action. Yeah, that's that's the glue that keeps everything together. Yeah, and then the failures. I actually, I, I actually, if I may, I say life is like three people, right? You got to be the guru, that kind of spiritual, like law of attraction in all this guru spiritual way and then you've got to be a navy seal mm. like uh, really elite practical execution for goal orientated targeting then you've got to be forest gump mm. just keep running making <laughs> stupid mistakes and just keep running yeah i like that uh, and those three things are hugely different but you got to have all those three characters in your life mm. or you just can't do it fair so tell me how you did it tell me about this so transition into the entrepreneurial world so corporate, I was doing very well. Um, in corporate um, biotech, everyone was doing face masks when the pandemic hit. Mm -hmm. We tried to do face masks, but we just couldn't land contracts with, a, with, with certain countries and governments. Um, yeah, that was a whole insider game, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I'm not going into that. <laughs> I have my own feelings for that. Maybe we can go off camera, we can talk about it. Uh, but we managed to sell to a European country, and we're happy. Then I worked out that a certain... Um, um, experimental models, if I say, was very important during the pandemic. Um, and a lot of countries were shutting those labs down. 
because they were scared. People were not going into work, and those labs were getting shut down all across Europe. So I approached my company, and the company approached the bank saying, hey, Pradeep has this idea of buying these companies across Europe. Um, the labs that weren't yeah. performing anywhere. Mm-hmm. So it's distressed assets, labs, and so forth. Yeah, and then uh, I was given I was given a a, a private jet and a, a car. I was like, you know, not because of luxurious, because we had so much work and it was so time consuming. I didn't, this is who who is funding all these operations. It right was now? The Chinese biotechs. Mm. Um, it just made me realize how quick entrepreneurial ideas. You know, I, I it took me two hours to come up with the idea, maybe minutes. But to put it in a presentation framework skeleton, two hours. How do you buy these companies? This is what the distress assets are. We can do it and we can really grow. Within weeks, I was on planes, uh, flying and doing deals. Never, I never, I'm from Northwest London. I never thought I'd be in a private jet. So how do you think that that was possible? Why, why was that made possible? Was it because you found something that someone needed and you gave them a solution as to what yeah. How you can give it to them? Yeah. Okay, if they want to make more money, this is how we're going to make you more money. Or why was it? And why it were people comes down to you? I think you just summed it up beautifully. Mm-hmm. If you serve the world and give people what they need or find a solution, the world or people will look after you. Um, and I done it very quickly and rapidly. And, uh, you know, I, I don't like... I have a presentation. I do a lot of keynote speaking. And one of the slides I have is a saying... He says, patience is a virtue. Mm. And I do a big cross. And I give two examples, right? I give uh, Cleopatra, fantastic woman. By 36 or 38, she conquered a known world, right? Alexander Gate, 32, conquered worlds. I mean, look at the risk and uh, appetite they had to do that, right? Obviously, they're in a position doing la la la. But they've done it so quickly. So I always say patience is a virtue looking backwards, Right? If you're, if you, you can't be patient when you have an idea and you execute. So it's how you serve people, how you help the world, but how fast you do it, hmm. right? And how quick you can execute those ideas, how quick you can actually plug the holes. What makes you be able to be doing things quickly? Mm. So it's a very good question. So it's almost you have to sit down and say, you got to work out, okay, I need to go from A to Z, uh, M might be a problem, T might be a problem. How do I neg- uh, negate, circumvent, or address M or T, even when you're in A, right? M or T might not even come as a hurdle. People say, let's cross the bridge. But usually, if you have the ability to look at the permutations that can go wrong, address them, you, you go through it quickly. So I'll give you ex- So what if somebody doesn't? What if there's somebody that's an entrepreneur, they have an idea? They have an idea they want to start a business, but obviously they've never done it. So they have absolutely no idea what even, how long the alphabet is, let alone how to tackle MOT. Yeah, Should they not a, start? No, no, no. That's a great question. I think you go from A to B. Um, and that's what I did on my, so that's the corporate journey. I brought those companies, made my name, I learned about entrepreneurial ideas and how to execute them. And I'm going to answer your question, right? Same time, I was going to this hotel, I was um, eating, right? I'm, I'm very social. 
and I see all these um, Chinese men eating with their cigars and their food and their laptop. I'm like, what are you guys doing here? You meet me locked down. They're like, oh, 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 we own the city. We own factory. We can do what we want. So I was like, the monkeys, who, who are these people? I'm like, they're all factory owners. They're an association that'll come. So they had metal factories, plastic factories, wood factory, like paper pin factories, plug factories, you name it, right? And I'm like, where do you sell? M- majority say e-commerce, online, Amazon. I'm like, let me see your numbers. I'm doing business development now, so I'm turned on by numbers, right? Like $400,000 a day, 200% ROI. I'm like, I'm in the wrong business. <laughs> so coming back to your question, I said, how do I get into e-commerce? I don't know even A to Z. I don't even know the alphabet exists, right? I'm, I'm talking a different language. Yeah. I'm talking, I don't know. Uh, Latvian. Right? Yeah. <laughs> is there a language called that? Yes. Latvian? Okay. That I'm talking Latvian. You're talking Latvian. I'm talking English, right? Don't because we're just confused. But yeah, so I'm like, how do I learn Latvian? Um, how do I do this? How do I learn Amazon? So coming back to your question, forget the alphabets, forget the permutation. You can only look at the permutation until you get into it. Just start, right? Just do it. Um, so oh, what I did was. During the day, I was associate professor, VP. During the night, I used to go to this hotel and for a couple of hours a day, I used to help these Chinese factory owners write on Amazon uh, customer case reports, mm. translate them, saying this customer has this problem, this, that write this, write this. So, Why on their right mind would an owner do this though? Not owner, like owner, but they used to have people, but they used to come to me. They're like, this person, can you email this on WeChat and so forth, connect it and so forth. That we're having customer report problems here. We're having, um, the, most of the problems was inventory going into Amazon. So I used to talk with the Amazon um, customer support. Mm-hmm. And usually the owners will have access passwords for it and so forth. Um, and then I'll talk to the team saying this is what you need. So I was learning Amazon like this um, or e-commerce. Um, so that's why coming back to your question, you just go ahead in. Mm. So I learned it and I eventually one, one person, I'm like, hey, can I sell your fidget toys? Remember the fidget toys? Yes. Like you're selling in the US, can I sell in the UK? So like, all right, pretty, we like you. Um, so uh, from, the U- from, from China, I opened a UK company um, and started selling toys. And that's how I learned Amazon. Mm. Um, uh, on online um, e-commerce and I was doing well like it was a side hustle gig was quite good and so forth Um, how do you have time for that when you have so many other responsibilities during the day yeah I I call it um, being lazily intelligent Mm. you've got to be you've got to be intelligent enough to know where your weaknesses is and delegate those weaknesses and be lazy enough to know how can I get everything done so quickly and you've got to be lazy uh, when you're thinking. Uh, not in a kind of a, oh, I'm going to be lazy, sit on the couch. But I've got this work to do. Uh, how can I be lazy of doing less of it, but at the same time getting as effective as I can in, in, in terms of my goals? Uh, I think yeah, it was Bill Gates that said that you need to hire a lazy person. Always. Because yeah, yeah. they'll find the best way to do a job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. Uh, I agree. Um, I think Warren Buffett said, make sure they're not lazy and intelligent. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think that's what you got to do. Um, and that's what I've done very well. I've always done so well. I've, I'll cut the crap. I'll, um, essentially, I delegate and I'll do other things that are important for my growth. 
and my company is growing. How do you find people that you can delegate to? Digressing on that point is uh, when I was hiring students, PhD students, staff and so forth, managers, I really got into the world of IQ and IQ testing. Mm. Um, Most of this IQ testing is highly Western based, right? And most of it is verbal. But then you have the other side is non-verbal, which is pattern recognition. And as a species, no matter where your ancestors are, from my ancestors, we're probably all from Africa anyway, but we recognize patterns in, um, in, in the African plains. That's how we evolved. It's pattern recognition, seeing gaps, addressing it. And I love that kind of brain. Obviously, you need the whole verbal side of it enough. So when I hire people, I'll say, okay, this is the task at hand. In my head, I'm going through this post. Is my gut? And if assessment saying that this person has the ability to recognize this task and address it, right, for a simple task, and then I'll delegate accordingly. I know in my social media team now who can do certain things, who can't, right? I know my manager has the ability to spot patterns very quickly and address them, but he now doesn't have the ability to do very technical social media things. So you have to understand, and then... As a leader, you have to understand how that person is growing as well and what pattern recognitions are they growing. So you're thinking about other people's thinking. Mm. And if you do that, uh, you're usually spot on. Um, You know, I always say never judge by a book by its cover, but you should know what what genre the book is. Mm. You're pretty stupid if you don't know if it's fiction or non-fiction. I mean, you you should know it's a children's book or is it factual. I think that saying is quite misconceived. Um, So... Yeah, I think that's how you learn. If you can think about what people are thinking and if their aptitude, the pattern recognition for a task at hand, I think you do very well. If you don't, give them the task to do, actually. Uh, we do that in the labs. I said, there's no point hiring PhD students if they can't do the experiment that they have to. I'm not saying do all experiments because there's so many techniques in science. If you can do three or four that are very important, so we do those and we can see, okay, can they read the data? Can they do the lab? Can they look at the data? If they have apps, they can do it. You know, it's up to them to grow into a world-leading scientist and you to guide them. Mm. The basics is actually doing the task at hand, and that's how I delegate. Okay, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. That's very insightful. And, and, and um, don't judge people quickly. Uh, I'll give you a funny story, can I? Yeah. Uh, there's a guy, I, I, I'm not going to say his name, short, very short, um, um, uh, very charming um, Chinese gentleman. I, I, and I was, I, was, I was going to VP and I was like my first high position and I was going to manage in and I was young and I thought how are these, you know, different ethnic minority, I'm an ethnic minority in different country, how would they take me being a manager and so forth. So I walked in and this gentleman was like, hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I was like hey. He, I, and he was like, I thought, I think he was thinking, uh, how do I become Western, right? And he's like, oh, like, nice. All right. And it was like a comedy in the movie. So I'll be typing and I'll go in my office a couple of days. Like, and but I was like, who is this guy? And he's, he's, he's directly a line manager, directing another line manager. I think he had 40 or 50 people under him. He's essentially very important because all the work for, for the sales go over, under, under him. So he needs to understand if the contracts are being executed, right? Uh, so I was like, is this guy doing work? You know, right? 
and then then I will come in at nine thirty ten, right? He'll work, bada bing, bada bong, bada bing, bada bong on the on the laptop. Uh, it'd be like one hour, and he'll walk past, and then, <laughs> and then he'll go off chatting to all the women in the office, right? And I was like, is this guy just a flirt, right? Then he goes off to have a cigarette. Then he comes back, talks to the women again. Then then he goes off for lunch, comes back, bada bing, bada bong, bada bing, bada bong, and it's emails. It's three thirty. He goes again for one hour, talking to them, chatting, flirting with the women, right? Um, and then he'll have a cigarette break. Then he goes home around four thirty. Well, what the monkey is going on, right? And I we were observing this, and I was I was kind of having a picture, narrating a picture inside me. I didn't want to pull him up, um, and the best thing I did, I didn't pull him up, and I waited until the group meeting. Right? The man was brilliant. He was just utterly brilliant, and within those three hours of chatting up people, but he was just gathering data, intel, mm-hmm. data, and he was just cross-webbing things, and he was just—he was brilliant, and his um, EQ was brilliant, and he just needed three hours. So sometimes I know people are just taking the piss, and they're working for one or two hours. Whatever works, if they What, get the job yeah, done. Yeah, I mean, I'll pay you. I mean, and, and it's brilliant. So that's one lesson I learned is like um, some people can do the job very well and give freedom. I have a saying. I say, um, give talent all the freedom in the world. Yeah, for everyone else, uh, give them an illusion of freedom. Right? Mm. If they're very talented and you pick up on it, give them freedom because those individuals you can't suffocate. Free people are no uh, talent need, needs freedom to operate in, right? With certain obviously boundaries and goals and so forth. We all need goals, but those who don't have a certain talent or I don't like the drive or appetite, you give them certain um, uh, watch them very carefully. Yeah, but give them an illusion of freedom because everyone needs a bit of freedom. Definitely. No micromanagement. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's just go over your kind of entrepreneurial, I guess, successes. So you said that you founded an eight-figure online company. That is the one that we spoke about, right? E-commerce, yes. Yeah. So what is happening right now, and where do you want to go? Yeah. So e-commerce. When I came back to the UK, my third or fourth dropout in life. Um, I tried very hard for eight months to get the same kind of level in academia or biotech. They're like, Pradeep, we, we know your achievements, but we can't upset the apple cart. You're like 33 when I came back, or 32, 34? Came back here. It came mm-hmm. back to the UK after the pandemic. Yeah. They're like, we can't give you this position. And I tried very hard for eight months. I'm like, to the hell with this. I've got Amazon business. Sorry, which position? Uh, any biotech VP, yeah. Yeah. associate professor mm-hmm. position. So in that eight month is when I thought, how can I give back? Maybe haven't not lose touch of science. So that's when I wrote that book on gut health. Mm-hmm. Gut health was quite prominent, and I thought I'll write it. Still and so is forth. very. Yeah, it always is. I think the ancient Greeks found it, mm. um, and maybe even older than that. Um, so yeah, so then I really switched on to my company. I said, you know, I can't get a job. I really love being entrepreneur, um, starting brands. And, you know the marketing and negotiating with the Chinese suppliers. I love that stuff. Sourcing, you know, and I was good with numbers, and I just loved forming teams and so forth. So I grew brands, a kitchen brand, a toy brand, and so forth, all online, all on Amazon, um, around the world. 
mm-hmm. in the U.S. marketplace. So produced in China and then yeah. sold the worldwide. Yeah. Okay. Um, what isn't right uh, at that time? So um, yeah, done very well there, e-commerce, and then when we say very well, what sort of numbers are we talking? Yeah, eight figures numbers, um, uh, uh, total revenue. Yeah. Um, and what's profit out of that percentage-wise? Probably at 22, 23%, uh, which is respectable, yeah. uh, particularly with the margins. Uh, what we think, what we went on to do is, because I used to buy uh, distressed businesses, I thought I can do that here in e-commerce. Uh, we're doing it now, um, but I realized the margins for e-commerce is getting thinner and thinner and thinner. Uh, the marketplaces are taking more and more and more. Mm. There's a lot of distressed businesses. For context, how, how much are the marketplaces taking and what, what margins are we talking Yeah, so the marketplaces typically take around 30 to 35%. Uh, if you think about it, it's even more because of marketing uh, on the marketplace itself, uh, you know. Mm-hmm. So that can rub up to 45, 50%, if not more. Sorry, just so I understand, because I'm not in this business. So when we say marketplace, you mean, that, for example, Amazon itself? Yeah, so you have Amazon fees, right? So they take a percentage of what you sell. Then you have Amazon storage. By the way, they should take storage and FBA fees because they're storing a product and it's a great business model. So you got that. Then you got Amazon advertising, which is really expensive now, pay-per-click. So you go away and you click on my product. Um, you, I'm paying what? It's called CPC, uh, cost per click. Maybe one pound, two pounds every time you click. You might not buy it, but you're clicking it. So we have a lot of complex numbers to work out cost per click. But 45% to 50%, that's insane amounts. Yeah, after advertising, storage, yeah. and all those. Uh, so a lot of people, even people might say, hey, for watching this product uh, podcast, pretty like, pretty that's even more now, now mm. um, because it's getting very expensive. Um, and plus on that, you add other business costs, and so then then you're left with your 23%. Yeah, 23%, overall, right? Yeah. We also, are, are the best thing is B2B. So once you start a brand, some, might, some people might recognize it and some stores might buy bulk. Uh, so that adds up. So we're, we're buying distressed assets at the moment, turning them around, growing a fund for it. Mm. But then before this podcast, I don't know if we're live, I just realized, you know, am I thinking big? I always, every Sunday I go for a run, um, Wednesdays and Sundays. And on Sundays I go to this specific cafe I like to have a coffee there. They have very good brunch. They have a good um, aubergine feta omelette. <laughs> um, um, and they, uh, brunch I should say. And I just, I, on my own, and I ask myself two questions. Am I thinking big enough? Am I taking enough risks? Um, on that Sunday, I didn't think of it, but because I woke up <laughs> at three o'clock that day, I'm like, yeah, the business is not growing as spectacularly as I want to. Am I thinking big enough? So we got into this, because we we're buying distressed junk business, I just Googled junk sale and junk commodities and scrap metal came up and metals themselves. Then I went into this kind of rabbit hole, which I Pradeep does, right? Obsessive focus, tunnel vision. And then I walked into metals, commodities. I'm like, holy crap, this is like a nearly a trillion, trillion plus Hundred, maybe hundreds of billion dollar industry, right? That we don't even know of, moving parts that we don't, we never see, right? As a, as a normal person. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're getting into it. We just built a team into metal commodities, 
um, you know, uh, and commodities uh, in terms of private label, but huge cooking oils and sugar, two big things, uh, and metal commodities around the world. So my goal now is to have an e-commerce vertical, a commodities vertical. Um, hopefully one day I can do a kind of commercial real estate vertical and also a biotech vertical. It'd be nice to go full circle, go back to owning my own little biotech or company. Mm. So I think the best thing as an entrepreneur or as a dreamer or whatever, a global businessman, whatever you want to be, a businesswoman or business lady, um, is to grow a, a set of verticals because one fails or one stagnates, you have other verticals to prop up. Mm. Uh, and sometimes we, we lose the focus there. Um, and how... In fact, everything is an opportunity cost. So the, people always talk about as soon as you take your eyes off of one thing, the other part, the other business or the other side of the business or the relationship suffers, something suffers. Like your attention, your focus is that, that laser yeah. that, that cuts the diamond. So how do you build so many different businesses successfully? without some of them failing or oh yeah i think i failed many more than i succeeded but it comes down to two things um what i've learned in the entrepreneur business systems and people hmm. if you have the right people uh if you if you start spinning a plate and you say hey come in and spin that plate for me and you've got the right managers or teams to manage that and then you have the right systems to feed you back the important metrics uh, and you have to be on top of the data and metrics. So the systems have to be, the flow of system and data has to be right. Once you get those two things right, I think you can focus back on the people and grow it. And also, I think with different verticals and different brands as well, I've seen this a lot with a lot of people who buy different Amazon brands or e-commerce brands or online brands or physical brands. They think it should be like this. But if you look at, even in your fashion industry, Louis Vuitton, is it the VH, what is it? LVMH. Yeah, group, right? It's a series of brands they brought, right? They only grew because they brought a series of brands. Mm -hmm. They didn't grow every brand like this. So what you need to do is say, hey, this brand or this company has grown like this. It's not because you're doing something wrong. It's because you have enough market share. I think uh, particularly in the online game, people always want to rank number one. People always want to be the best and so forth. Ranking three to ten will give you enough profits. And you've got to stagnate and buy another brand or launch a new brand. Hmm. If you have multiple brands, I think that's the way. And then systems, people. And the third thing is you need to know when to cut um, uh, dead weight. You need to know how to lean out, you know. I know when I've had like three or four takeaways and I ate too much outside. I, I, know, when I, should be, I know exactly when I should go back to my uh, intermittent fasting. I was intermittent fast, but when I eat my fish and salads and so forth, go back to my hermit lifestyle. So you should know when to lean out very quickly. I say, hey, this is now flat. It doesn't mean you're doing bad. Let's just keep going, keep going, keep going. And if, if, you, if there's an online entrepreneur, there's a story I know of a man. Um, he's a mentor and a guy I respect a lot. He spent 400000 on Google's, um, um, Google ads. Great growth. 500000 is like great growth. 600000 great growth, right? 
He's like, okay, here's 700,000, boom. Uh, it's, there's a saturation limit to everything. Mm. And it's not like the algorithm or the system's playing games so you are, you're doing anything wrong. It's just how the market is. There's a need and demand and you just can't stuff things down people's throat and don't expect cheaper competition to come along. Mm. Um, so you need to know systems, people, and know when to cut and know when to, to stabilize growth. Yeah, that reminded me of, I listened to this podcast of a nasty gal founder. Uh, and uh, yeah, the, her problem, her the reason why her business failed was because she got too much money. And, you know, not not great advice. And everything just went out of the window. Yeah, There's I mean, such a thing as well. If you want to touch on the entrepreneurial side of it, we, we actually, if, it's a bit funny because I left academia, but I go around the world speaking on certain topics. And every September, like lectures, I change my lecture for the year, right? Mm. So this year, this September, there's a series of talks I've done. Uh, all I'm going to do is on what we looked at the data of 128 failing or distressed businesses. We only brought two. And turn them around. And then we looked at all the data and I give four case studies. Um, and those four things that are going wrong in online businesses, and normally we see it across all businesses, but what we see as a company is four things. Human resources, too much spend right, on unnecessary things. Everyone's going to Tony Robbins conferences. Everyone wants personal growth and so forth. Um, too much spend on those things. Everyone wants to take their team out to everywhere. Like... You know, Jeff Bezos and others, they have enough money to do it, but they're not even doing it. There's a corporate kind of integrity you need to maintain as a starter founder, right? And too much conferences, too much sourcing event. Everyone wants to go around and be buddies with their factories. Um, the second thing we're finding is poor logistics um, uh, in terms of shipping and 3PL storage and warehouses. That can be a lot cheaper. The third thing we find is poor inventory management. People stock up so much and they, get, and they cannot sell because they're too optimistic. Um, and the fourth thing we find is human resources, 3PL, logistics. Um, we find poor systems as well. Um, they can't manage all the data. Um, so those are the four things. Nothing to do with PPC or advertising or pay-per-click, nothing to do with imaging, branding or social media. All those points are easy to address, nothing to do with listing, those changeable things, but the real foundation, uh, the, the fourth thing, sorry, it's, it's also sourcing, um, getting the right price. So the four fundamental things, they're getting wrong. Mm. And coming back to your point, it's also a wasteful spend. So you're right on that. It's a, too much money sometimes being wasted. Mm. Very valuable. I feel like uh, we could go like uh, even deeper in under 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 uh, each topic. But um, as we wrap up, I would like to ask you a question that I ask all of my guests. Uh oh, she didn't warn is... me about this. <laughs> it's an easy one. What is your recipe for happiness? Oh, well, I say it's easy, but <laughs> yeah, Thibault, Thibault, my my friend from Oxford. Um, he was a senior. He always introduced me uh, to people he knew. This is pretty, he doesn't believe in happiness. Mm. Um, so, because I gave him a lecture and he's like, this guy's crazy. So I don't believe in happiness. I think happiness is an emotional state that comes and goes. Right? I don't like the, I, mm -hmm. I, I mean, I'm not saying be depressed. You can be happy. It's an emotional state, right? I believe in being content. I think my recipe for content is to say, these are the cars life gave me. I've done so well. 
I'm at this position now, I'm grateful, and this is what I can do now to address the next goal. So be content, understand how you've grown, and understand your personal growth to the next stage. If you can manage those, then I think that equates to happiness. But happiness is a word itself, is is very um, subjective, and it's quite deceptive as well. I think one has to be very careful. Yeah, I very much agree that it's a, it's a state, it's an emotional state that fluctuates all the time and it's very unrealistic to expect you can't keep to it. be happy all the time and that is probably the, the root of all evil when it comes to discontentment within people. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's quite a few guests uh, over this past year that are kind of under the same. Yeah, I think it's very, you need to, we need to address people saying, you know, um, uh, uh, I don't know if it's a generational thing. Um, I, I think we're the same generation. Uh, past generations, I think, didn't put too much on um, happiness as a word. Right? Yeah, they were about doing and about getting doing the work done. And, yeah. and, and, and small things made them happy, yeah. but getting it done. And I think they still well, do. Everyone still is happiest from those small things. They just don't necessarily understand, understand that and acknowledge that. And, you know, conversations like this, the reason why I ask this question is because so many people... Uh, are chasing happiness. I just want to be happy. You know how many times I've mm. heard this phrase? Uh, and so I think it's very valuable to hear different people's perspectives about what, what happiness mm. actually means, how it manifests and where it comes from. And the people, I'll say 95% of people that don't give this answer, they, the things that they mention, they're people, community, doing meaningful work. Yeah. And, you know, being out in the sun, things like that, that are all... When the sun hits the back of your neck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That are all very accessible and available to most yeah. of us at all times. One thing I like to add, I know you're going to wrap up, but I'm very careful when people hear this story and you listen. Most of this time, I wasn't happy, mm. right? Um, all these achievements, I've done it at a rapid pace and I didn't care what people think and so forth. But my happiest moments are when I'm in the grind uh, and I know I'm achieving on the grind and learning. And most of the time I was broke. I didn't know where I was going. I was stressed, but I was happy. And uh, if you happy in a state that I am content where I am. Mm. Um, so I think that's a very hard place to be, but you can get there. And I'm always very, very super careful when people look at me. I, I'm always very careful to say most of this is down to a lot of stress and failure. Mm. I've learned from my failures a lot, not because I'm this bright individual, gifted, no, no, by no means no, but it's just a lot of failure and understanding that I'm not happy all the time and being okay with it. Being okay with it and uh, pivoting, trying new things. Yeah, and, and maybe I'm, I'm, I'm a bit cliche, but the gym and the physical side helped a lot. It, it's, it's, it still does, by the way because it's my release mechanism. It can be anything for anyone, but that side really helped. Hmm. Actually, very, very, very interesting point you, you just shared, which is, you know, mostly people chase, they chase goals. And, you know, now it's being popularized that it's about the journey and not the, not the destination, which is super valid. And we need to hear more and more of that. But it's interesting to hear you say that, you know, despite all of these accolades and these achievements, most of the time you weren't, you weren't happy and you weren't content. So one that's listening might say, well, then what is it all for? So then my question to you is, 
Could you have been happier if you celebrated your achievements along the way? Or is it always an elusive next thing you're working towards that gives you the enjoyment because you're actually just working towards it? Oh yeah, so I, I do celebrate, I can party hard, uh, but then I'll move on, right? Uh, it's the next thing, but it comes down to three things, if I may. It comes down to my personal drive and growth, um, being content in the process and not viewing it as a journey. And, and I, I, I believe the end goal is there and people should celebrate the journey, but I call it a process because I'm very skeptic of the word journey in this definition because when we say journey, we know our end goal. No one starts a journey saying, hey, I'm just going to walk out of the house, right? Because mm. the journey itself, it can, it can turn around and do anything. So if, you understand, if you're going to an end goal, I think it's a more of a process mm. than a journey. I think you view back, my life has been a journey, only viewing back. But for my next goal, it's a process. Mm. If that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, that makes much sense. I think um, your view of it all is a bit different than maybe a lot of people, especially if you're looking from a more spiritual perspective. Because in fact, if you're looking uh, of it all from a spiritual lens, then you think you know your goal you have no mm. way of ensuring that you're going to get there or how it's actually going to look in the end and therefore it's a journey because actually you have no idea where you're going yeah. you yeah. think you know I, I can get it i can get it but you only do that retrospectively when yeah. you're looking back at the journey yeah uh, now for me it's like uh, if i want to say hey i'm going to dominate global metals <laughs> no, no, no 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 i'm not uh, so i'll say it's a process i'm like i'm not going to go on a journey right um so, yeah, I understand. But looking back, I might not even end up in metals. You know, I might not end up as a world-class scientist, Nobel Prize winner, whatever, right? I might end up as a bum on the streets. I don't know. But it's a journey, right? Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Um, no, but, but, but I like the way that you frame it because it's a much more consistent uh, way of actually getting to your goal. So you are more goal-oriented and you yeah. enhance your possibility of actually getting there by seeing it as a path as a system yeah, to get there and, and um, when it's a process you know I just I was telling my brother he, he, I never had deep conversation with my brother but once in a while we do I said when it's a process it's more measurable yeah if it's a journey it's not measurable and if you can't measure it I don't know what what you're doing and, and I've been in those states that I'm doing a project I'm like what is my measurable outcome here like is nothing like what are you doing, Pradeep? And I've been stuck in a rut sometimes. So I think oh, that's also very, uh, I'm very careful on that point. When it comes to a journey, I think sometimes we're chasing the spiritual side a bit too much. And we forget the Navy SEAL or the mm. Forrest Gump. Yeah, too much of guru domination. Yeah, and I'm scared of that as well. Um, so I think a fine balance. So the process allows me to measure, then I look back on the spiritual journey. Mm. And then I philosophize and I can come up with sayings and it's called all nice and lovey-dovey. But in the thick of things, it's like you're a soldier. It's a process. Thank you, Pradeep. Very long answer for happiness. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you Good very luck much. With everything. Hello, friends. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe and share it with someone. I would love to hear your feedback and suggestions as to what guests you would like to see in the show next. See you next week.